Welcome back to the next installment of This Is My World, featuring Big Sexy. <laughs> Hope everybody's having a good afternoon. <clears throat> the voice is a little strained. Uh, long week in court, caught a smack, those things happen. Uh, thank you all for all the positive support on my first attempt when I talked about the Paul Stanley Soul, Soul Station album. You know, I got a lot of good feedback, some... Most of you dug it, some of you didn't, and that's cool because all music is not for all people, but all people love music, so it's all good. And I did mention, both online and in in that program, that we would be talking about the 1987 Grammy Awards. Yeah, we're doing that today. Now, <clears throat> before we get all up into that, let's... Step into the Wayback Machine and see what was happening back in 1987. Well, The Simpsons started and are still on, you know, all these years later, you know, definitely tip of the hat to them. In the theaters, we had Three Men and a Baby. We had Cher getting an Oscar for Moonstruck. We had the premiere of Married with Children. A lot of people hated it, but it kept Fox on the air. Because that show was a hit. Over in wrestling, we had WrestleMania 3, where Vince McMahon and the WWF, now WWE, shoehorned 93,000 people into the Pontiac Silverdome. Wow. That's a lot of people. <laughs> you know, the highlight of, or the highlight show or match that evening was Andre versus Hulk Hogan. But all true wrestling fans know that they had wrestled many times before 1987, several in New York City under the WWF, a couple more in Atlanta, I think one in New Orleans, and one over in the Southeastern Territory. I don't know what, what city that was located in. But yeah, they were there. So let me turn this up a bit because I can see on my um, spectrograph, or whatever the hell you call it, Mike is a little low, so let's kick that up a taste. How's that? Is that better? Well, we'll, fi we'll fix it in the edit. <laughs> now, <clears throat> as promised, we're going to get into the 1987 Grammys. But before we do that, let's review the process to get nominated. First, your album has to come out within the calendar year and be released commercially in the United States. So that's first. If it wasn't released or in their calendar year or, or their year that they use, it's not going to make it. Then, the not, then your submission has to come from either you, the artist, or your label. If it's not submitted, it's not going to get listened to. Sorry. Once it's submitted... There's a special committee that narrows it down to 20. And then from the 20, the finals are chosen, and those are the ones voted on. And a lot of you who know me pretty well know that I have pretty strong feelings about the 87 Grammys. But as with a lot of things, you can't, or I can't, beef about it until I've heard all of the nominees, which I have done. I got them all last year. And now I took a good listen you know, over a few months. We familiarized myself with them last week. And now we're going to get, get into it. The number one nominee for Album of the Year, U2, The Joshua Tree. Now, the source I'm listening to it, or I listened to it from, was the Mobile Fidelity Sound Labs version, the gold CD for the audiophile heads out there. This was... Produced by, I just wrote that down, Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois. Music by the band, pretty much. Now, we all know that this album <clears throat> had three huge singles. Where the Streets Have No Name, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, and the lead single, 
with or without you. Now, I took an opportunity to revisit that video with or without you, and I always thought back in 87, I think it now, that was where you two got a little self-important for me. You know, if you look at this output compared to their previous album, Unforgettable Fire, they're a little more dramatic and a little more serious and, you know, the Bono ponytail. I'm like, come on, man, let's, let's not do this. But the visuals aside, I got to give it up. This is a great album beyond the three singles. You know, Bullet the Blue Sky really stands out. Running to Stand Still, another standout track. Red Hill Mining Town and God's Country. You know, the one that caught my eye as, I don't want to say a, a clunker or anything like that, but there's one song called One Tree Hill, and it sounds a little new wavy, a little skinny time synthesizer for me, and it doesn't really fit in place on this album. Whereas Bullet the, Bullet the Blue Sky would have been right at home on Unforgettable Fire as well. So what are you going to do? The album was better than I expected. Can't lie. Yeah, I can't lie. Uh, Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno did the damn thing as far as production because the sound textures, for lack of a better word, were just magnificent. Now, before I go a step further, we're going to review my review, review system. And I listened to all... Yeah, there's a hair in my mouth. I listened to all the music through this system. Uh, starting from the speakers inward, I have B&W 805D stand-mounted monitors, along with my... I just forgot who made my subwoofer. <laughs> my definitive technology... 1500 subwoofer from there we go to audio quest cabling from from the speakers to the power app the power app is a mark levinson ml333 300 watts a channel and see all that power does not mean it has to play at you know rock concert levels it can but that's not what it's there for it's there to produce the dynamics accurately so when you have a passage of music that goes from very soft like this, and you can hear anything. To very loud! Ah! You get it all reproduced accurately. And from there, we go to my Anthem preamp. And from there, we go out to my Oppo or Oppo 105D Blu-ray player. Now, I also have the hard drive files on a USB drive connected to the Oppo. They're connected to the amp through a USB excuse me, through a HDMI cable, unless otherwise noted. That's the review system. Now, back to Joshua Tree. The sound textures were outstanding. I have nothing but positive things to say about the recording. They did a great job. I don't know who engineered it, but they really did a great job on it. I was... Um, honestly pleasantly surprised by it and it was definitely worthy of the nomination nominee number two where is my list <laughs> hold on <laughs> technical difficulties those things happen the second nominee is Whitney Houston's second album titled Whitney came out again 1987 and this album Popwise had many hits. It was a monster. It was produced by a trio of people. Narada Michael Walden. What's going on, man? He is also the new Journey drummer, so that's pretty cool. Jellybean Benitez, Michael Masser, and Kashif, the late Kashif, rest in peace. So I was wrong. It was produced by four people. But the bulk was done by Narada Michael Walden. Contains the monster hits. I Want to Dance with Someone Who Loves Me. Or somebody who loves me. Didn't we almost have it all? So emotional. And a cover of one of my songs from the Isley Brothers, For the Love of You. And it had Where Do Broken Hearts Go. This album was a big sophomore hit for Miss Houston any way you slice it. But. <laughs> 
you know, when you when you're going for, and this is just my own opinion, when you're going for something as heavy as the album of the year, as you know, looking at it strictly as an artist, Whitney didn't really do much on this album. I mean, again, beautiful voice, legendary voice, and can take any song from any producer and just handle that, you know. But again, there are so many voices, so many different points of view in here, so many songwriters. Not to say that it was confusing, because it wasn't. It was really well done. But there are differences. You can tell the Nirvana Michael Walden songs, and you can hear the Kashif song, you can hear the Jelly Bean song, and you can definitely hear the Michael Master song, and know that those are definitely four hands, four different hands on, on those pies. So it does lack a little cohesiveness. Now it is sequenced magnificently. Again, for a second album, there is no sophomore slump here. A lot of people, and we all know this, will hit big with their first album, second album comes out, and it's like, yeah, yeah, you kind of take a step back there. Not here. In fact, she grew as a singer, picked better songs all the way around, but as far as being the song album of the year, I don't, I don't know if I could, could vote for this. Now, again, it's still early. We don't know what I'm going to vote for. Now, the next one, and this was a heavy one, Bad by Michael Jackson, produced by the legend Quincy Jones, engineered by his buddy, the recently departed Bruce Swedeen. And those guys, <clears throat> as a team, and, Quitney, and Quincy as Quincy, as a solo, you know, <laughs> what can you say? Quincy has a closet full of 29 Grammys. I think that pretty much says that. You know, Quincy has done everything there is to do in music. Period. There will never be another like him. He can do anything he wants. Uh, I listened to this on a 24-bit, 48 hertz download FLAC file. And let me go back to Whitney for me a moment. I listened to hers as a standalone, standard 16-bit CD. I couldn't find any higher-resolution album or version of that song. Uh, back to Bad, I got to give it up. That album holds up still. <laughs> you know, to this day, it holds up. You know, I, in my notes here, no matter what Michael could have done, or for that matter, anyone could have done, when you have the Quincy machine behind you and working with you, it's going to sound fantastic. Quincy has the best selection of the best session players, the best writers, period. Now, in recent years, I've been reading and been hearing that Part of the reason they stopped working together was Michael wanted to get more credit in the production and Quincy's like, ah, uh, no, we're not doing that. I'm not saying Michael couldn't produce. I'm not saying that at all. But you don't try to elbow out Quincy for credit. That's just, that's just not cool. Now let's look at the songs here. We had a lot of songs. And this, we're going to talk about the tour in a minute, but this album was the follow-up to the impossibly well great selling thriller and anybody who would have to follow up something like that had to be intimidated but mike wasn't you know i, I had heard a lot of things i'd done a lot of reading on it michael's like let's go ahead and top thriller which is an impossible task but the fact that he wanted to take it on i gotta respect that and he went to the right right person to do it you know, Quincy helped him with, with Thriller, taught him how to produce. He watched him in the studio, the whole nine. Now he's got come back and coming back out with Bad. Monster hit. No way around it. The title song, there was a little controversy about that. Legend has it. 
No, no, I take that back. There's no legend. I saw Prince say this on an interview with Chris Rock. That song was originally going to be a duet with Michael and Prince. And when the song got to Prince, he read the lyrics, and the first lyric was, your butt is mine. And Prince, <laughs> in his interview with Chris Rock, was like, yeah, you ain't singing that to me. And I definitely ain't singing that to you. <laughs> so we got a problem. <laughs> Needless to say, the duet didn't happen. <laughs> but going back to the song itself, it's a good song. Very well done. Very, I don't want to say slick because that that's, gives you the wrong impression. But masterfully crafted. The video, you know, and this one, Mike, this was when Mike was Mike. He called up CBS and said, yeah, you know what? I'm going to premiere my video in prime time on your channel. And they're like, cool. And they had the video, long form video, young, <clears throat> a young, I just had a brain hemorrhage. <laughs> a young Wesley Snipes played a character in it. And it was really well done back when videos meant something. You know, uh, and Michael changed his look up a bit. It was, it was, it was great. No way around it. You know, the next song, The Way You Make Me Feel, another great song. And this album is full of great songs. And the only thing that a person could really compare it to would be Thriller. And again, again looking down the list, now, you get the Speed Demon. Yeah. No. I know, I know. I know I'm getting some hate out there. But Speed Demon, yeah. They could have picked a better choice there. However, Liberian Girl, masterpiece. Anyway, you slice it. That song is a masterpiece. Quincy and Bruce and that team, again, did the damn thing. They put out a masterpiece. Hey, just what I said. Um, but my favorite song on this album is another part of me. I loved seeing the video, the performance video of it. The studio version captures that energy. You know, everything about it was just fantastic. This, you know, a lot of people get on Mike for being, oh, well, he's always in the tabloids. And Damn that. The guy makes music. And he makes great music, and he has great people around him. That's the key. You know, because a lot of people have been critical of him at, at times, and I've been one of them, because he doesn't really play an instrument. But he still is able to get his, get his opinions and his points across to his team. And that's all you need to do. As long as you can accurately describe what you want from your musician and the rest of your teammates, you're good to go. Because there's a scene in the video that was released after his passing, the This Is It tour. I forget who the keyboard player is, but they're working on something together, and the keyboard player plays it, quote, his way. And Mike walked over is like, uh, man, uh-uh, no. It goes boom, 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 boom. And the keyboard player is like, well, are you sure? Mike's like, yeah, I'm sure I wrote it. There you go. <laughs> I win. I'm Michael. You just play as you've been instructed to play. You know, and again, you know, the hints just keep coming. Man in the Mirror, Dirty Diana, I Just Can't Stop Loving You, Smooth Criminal, Leave Me Alone. Yeah, we can leave that one alone. But looking at, again, going back to Dirty Diana, this was a Quincy move. Now, I don't know if Quincy made this call personally, but this started back with Thriller. You know, they had, oh, what's my man's name? Steve Lukather from Toto, a group uh, you know, of its own, you know, renowned and success, but those guys are notoriously popular for being session cats, too. A lot of people get them. If you look at liner notes, which we don't have in the age of streaming, but if you look at liner notes on some albums, especially through the 80s and 90s, you will see Toto's names all over it as far as session work. That's what they do. Those cats are that good. But for the song Beat It, Steve Lukather did the guitar work, however... Someone decided to get Eddie Van Halen to do the solo, as we all know. 
I don't know how it came about. I don't know who, who suggested it. I'm hearing that Quincy suggested it. I don't know. But I do know that Quincy called Eddie and asked him to come by. And Eddie hung up on him because he thought, yeah, this is not Quincy Jones. Get lost. Click. Quincy called back again. And they, they talked it out. And Eddie was like, sure, come by. And I saw an interview with Eddie before he passed that said he did it because the band, other band members were all doing who knows what. So they wouldn't give him any static for doing something outside of the group. Uh, at the time, I think David Lee Roth was doing his Jungle Studs thing or his, uh, yeah, that's what he was doing. He was doing his Jungle Studs thing. Alex was off racing cars or something. And Eddie's like, yeah, I'll do it. He goes over there, plugs into the board. They rearranged a little bit of the album or the song so Eddie could get a good grasp on the solo. He gives the solos two passes. Second pass was money. And Quincy's like, fantastic. <laughs> and Quincy's like, what are you? And he's like, nah, give me a six pack of beer. That was it. Michael walks into the room. I love what you did with that, Eddie. Thank you. You know, <laughs> you know and the solo on that album really opened up Mike to another audience, myself included, because having Eddie play on it was instant credibility to the rock guys, of which I am one. And it's a blistering solo. This He wasn't kidding around. Now, <clears throat> having said all that, coming back to Dirty Diana, I don't, again, I don't know who made this call, but they tried to go for that again. On Dirty Diana, instead of calling up Eddie, they called up Steve Stevens from Billy Idol at the time, who was just scorching hot. I like Steve Stevens. I like his work. But the result wasn't quite the same. Not to diminish Stevens as a player by any leap of the imagination, but that magical connection just didn't happen. The song wasn't a hit like Beat It was. It didn't have that impact. But again, it's a great song. And unfortunately, a lot of people will compare that to Beat It. Well, why are you trying to do what they did on Beat It? See, and there's more to it. Michael was just trying to put the best album out that he could. Now, let's talk about that tour. The bad tour went everywhere. The bad tour was everything that the Thriller slash Victory Tour should have been. Michael took his music, took his show to the world, and the world loved him for it. It was... It was a spectacle, and it just did not stop. Anywhere he didn't go on the bad tour must have been because of scheduling conflict, because it was everywhere. And this was his first headlining tour as a solo. You know, he didn't, didn't take the brothers out this time and did his thing and stood on his own and put out the, the show of the year. Hands down. So again, back to the album itself. Magnificent. Kind of like with you two. I want to sit here, man, it wasn't that good. No, it was that good. You know, so far, the field for the 87 Grammys is, is pretty loaded. I, I can't I can't lie. There have been times where, like with Thriller, you knew going in it was going to win. We all knew it. And then there were times, in, for instance, 1985, you have Bruce Springsteen, born in the USA, monster. You got Prince of the Purple Rain, monster. Yet Lionel Richie went with Can't Slow Down. What? Really? To quote Mr. Richie, that was outrageous. <laughs> but I digress. Our next selection. Oh, excuse me. Comes from the country charts. Trio by Dolly Parton, Linda Ronstadt, and Emmylou Harris. And this was produced by, I wrote his name down and can't find it. Hold on. Oh, there it is. This was produced by George Massenberg. Now, the heavy thing about this is, and I'm not a country music expert by any stretch, but the heavy thing about this is you take three legendary singers and put them in a true collaboration that's going to definitely get people's attention. In the country field, this was big. 
It was number one for, I believe, six straight weeks on the country charts and peaked on the hot top 200 da -da -da, at, at number six. This was a major deal. Because let's think about it. Assuming, and I, I don't know this is fact, but assuming all three ladies are on different labels, that's going to be a problem right there. Because you know there's always one label where you can't have my singer. So there's beef among the labels. But they said, you know what, we're doing this. And that's just the way it is. And they did it. I listened to it. I listened to it in high resolution. I got the 24-bit 96 hertz high, excuse me, HD tracks flat version of it. And again, I'm not a country expert, but they stuck real close to traditional country in the vein of things like Patsy Cline and Tammy Wynette. They, it was outstanding. I, I loved it. And again, I'm not a big country guy, but this was great. And it deserved its place among, you know, the album of the year candidates. And I'm glad they do that because it's a general field award and it shouldn't be limited to just pop, rock, metal, whatever. It should en encompass everyone. And again, when you have three legends like this coming together for a true collaborative album, not just one song. Not just a B-side here and there. No, they did a true collaboration. It's a big deal. And it worked. And the cool thing about the production is they let the singers shine. They moved the music. The music was there. was definitely there. But they let the singers really step forward when it came time for each one to do her thing. You know, and again, Dolly Parton, as a singer... And songwriter, legend, country legend, no questions about it. Emilio Harris, same thing. Linda Ronstadt, you know, she is iconic because she's mastered so many different things. You know, she comes out as like a folk person initially, then goes into a little bit of rock, you know, hanging with the Eagles and cats like that, Jackson Brown, then goes into... I believe Tejano or Mexican themed music has done country and she does them all exceptionally well. This was a big deal and it definitely earned its place. I was definitely shocked <laughs> by it, honestly. I just, I really dug it. And our final contender is Sign of the Times, Prince. Now, let me stop right there. I know what you're all thinking. Okay, sexy. You do the Prince podcast. Shout out to Michael Dean. You do the Prince podcast. You're a Prince head. We know how you're going to vote. Not so fast. Again, me as a 1987 college junior. Yeah, I would have voted for Prince not, not even blinked. But now that age, uh, too much age. And expanding one's musical horizons and takes again like i said when i started this thing on our first episode gotta step out of your comfort zone if something's better than what you expect it to be you, you gotta you know respect that and so having a look at looking at it through that lens let's let's dive in prince was a re, excuse me sign of the times was a return to form for prince in this regard he did it himself. Whereas from 1984's Purple Rain, uh, 1985's Around the World in a Day, 1986's Parade, there was a lot of input <coughs> excuse me, from his bandmates, particularly Wendy and Lisa. We all know this. I don't know. I, that's why I do know what happened. <laughs> On the last leg of the parade tour, Wendy and Lisa had told Prince, you know what? We're out. We're going to split. We need more money. He's like, come on, let's not do this. You know, let's work it out, blah, blah, blah. They stuck it out to the last night of the tour, which was, I believe, Yokohama, Japan, in September of 86. It stands out because he destroyed his guitar at the end of the show, and that was it. The revolution was over. They, when he came back to L.A., he called them to, the, to his house, 
said, you ladies are done. And they were done. You know, the drummer Bobby left. Um, bass player Mark Brown, Brown Mark left. And the only one who hung out was Dr. Frank. But he's not involved with this particular album. And so from that point, <clears throat> Prince had been working on something called Dream Factory and Crystal Ball, which encompassed a lot of the songs that wound up on Sound of the Times. At one point, he submitted a three-album set, and Warner Brothers was like, no. <laughs> You're not getting three. So he's like, damn. Went back, made some changes. Uh, the biggest change that I'm hearing is he all of the Wendy and Lisa contributions were taken out, and, and other songs were changing around and to make it a true one-man band deal. So he does it again. Submits it as a two-album two set. Label is cool. Off we go. Uh, the lead single, Sign of the Times itself, sparsely produced. Video, he's not even in the video. The video was like a lyric video. Completely different than what he was doing on Parade. And, it, and the songs were really more mature sounding. I read an article recently with his fiancée at the time, Susanna Melvoin, Wendy's twin sister, that she says that she feels, I think, was it her? her no, I take it back. Wendy said this. Wendy said the ballads he did when he was writing with them show a definite intimacy and maturity that he hadn't shown before. And as I go back and look at it, I immediately think of if I was your girlfriend. Yep. Stands up. Stands up. You know, the ballads are magnificent. The jazz, early jazz influences there that this led to the whole Madhouse thing. The guitar was there. This, again, was a masterpiece. And Prince, as usual, produced this himself. The tour, he got new, new members all the way around for the tour, with the exception of um, Dr. Fink. And a lot of us, by, what's the word I want to use? <laughs> a lot of us, by um, unusual means, saw the opening premiere night or the warm-up night of that tour. And it was outstanding. That was, it was truly outstanding. Now, recently in the updated Super Deluxe box set, there is a DVD of the New Year's Eve performance of 1987 at Paisley Park, where the legend himself, Miles F. Davis, walks out onto him and plays with him a little bit. That alone blew my mind. Miles Davis walked out and played with them. Wow. <laughs> but that was after the album came out. The album comes out and it was a masterpiece. You know, I don't really believe a lot of videos were taken from it. I know you got the look was. And feel free to jump in on this one if I'm missing something. I don't believe there was a lot of footage from it. There was a performance he did at the MTV VMAs that year where he did Sign of the Times and Playing the Sunshine and stole the show. So this was truly a masterpiece. And again, worthy of inclusion in this group. <clears throat> now, let's break this mother down. Going back to the top, U2, Joshua Tree, Masterpiece. I want to say that Unforgettable Fire was better, but I, I, can't, I can't say that. Even though I prefer the standout songs there over the ones here, as a whole, this is an outstanding package. And plus, and shout out to um, Simbarash. He pointed out that this, this album really had a cultural impact too because it did. A lot of people were running around with a Bono slick back ponytail and it really catapulted them onto the next stratus. It really did. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. It deserves to be here. It's a great album. Can't hate on it. However, you have four people, for the most part, writing the music. You've got an outstanding...
outstanding duo of producers. Because I don't believe Brian Eno and Daniel Lenoir did a lot of stuff together along the lines of Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. I know Lenoir or Eno worked a lot with David Bowie. And I can't think of who Lenoir worked with off the top of my head. But these guys are well known in their own rights and deservedly so. So, so you two chose well. Can't lie. Can't lie. Let's go to number two. The lovely Miss Whitney Houston. Timeless voice. Timeless voice. And all the drama around that, I don't want to hear it. Her voice, magnificent. Truly a gift from above. But, again, we have Whitney by committee here. We have four producers a ton of songwriters and a lot of it results in a great album but a great album that is uneven and inconsistent so yeah there's that number three bad you know what bad yeah yeah really really bad (laughs) michael jackson had the impossible task a following up thriller and the man stood his ground and said we're gonna do the damn thing I can't criticize that album other than Speed Demon yeah no other than that album's, album's a standout I mean it's it's not it didn't have the impact culturally that Thriller did but nothing will nothing a lot of people now are saying well, what about no? What about nothing? No, nothing will ever hit the landscape and explode like the megaton bomb that was Thriller. It's not going to happen. Period. So a lot of people are holding that consciously or unconsciously against him because it's well, it's not Thriller Part Two. He didn't want to do Thriller Part Two. He wanted to do something else. But and again, he did it very well. But Michael, to me, I don't want to use the word suffers, but Michael has Quincy Jones and the Quincy crew behind him. It's kind of hard to mess that up. I'm not trying to shortchange MJ by any leap of the imagination, but, and he did write or co-write most of the things on here. But Quincy made it happen. Bruce Wadeen made it sound pristine. They called the best session people available, and they put out a truly masterful piece of art. No fans are much about it, but it wasn't Michael Jackson. It was Michael Jackson and the crew. Let's get real. And... I heard that. Stop hating on me. Four. Trio. Dolly Parton, Linda Ronstadt, Emmylou Harris. Again, collaborative work. Fantastic collaborative work. Don't get me wrong. And when I I decided to do this, one of the things I was pondering, like, should I buy this? Will I I listen to it again? The answer is yes and yes. I listened to it several times and I like it. So I, I, again, I try to listen to all kinds of things and give it a fair shot. And let's be real here also. There are recent Grammy nominated things, really recent, that I do not give a damn about. And I've heard them. I'm like, yeah, I was right. This is bullshit. One man's opinion. Going back to the 1987 awards, trio, outstanding work. But it's a group work. Which brings me to the one I would have picked on my ballot. Sign of the Times. And let me get my little note out here. Damn it. Hold on. Again, technical difficulties. (laughs) All right, back to Sign of the Times. This was not Prince and the Revolution. This was not Prince and the New Power Generation, because it didn't exist yet. This was Prince post-revolution in the studio himself 
doing this. And if you look at the liner notes on the album and the CD, and most of you listening know this as well, if not better than I do, he did everything on this album. He played it all. He wrote it all. With the exception of Starfish and Coffee, he wrote that with Susanna Melvoyne, and Slow Love, he wrote with Carol Davis. Other than that, he wrote it all. He played it all. He produced it all. Among the engineers, there was Coke Johnson. There was Susan Rogers, who's been on our show. Very nice woman. Met her personally a couple times. Really cool to see her. And, oh, yeah, the third engineer, Prince. Think about that for a moment. You've got a 24 or 48-track studio in front of you. You walk in by yourself. And you're like, you know what? I got a song I need to get out. And you pick up the drums, start there. You pick up your bass guitar, lay down the bass track. You pick up your synthesizers, do a little synth playing. Put in some percussion, put in your guitars, your lead vocal, your background vocal. Then you sit there with Susan or Coke, mix it up a little bit, and it's done. I know I make it sound impossibly easy, but to him, it was that easy. You know, one of the things I would always tell people when we would argue constantly about, well, Michael's better than Prince, man, got your mind. I would tell people this. <clears throat> Prince is one of the very, very few people who could walk into a studio alone and come out in a couple hours with a completed song ready to go to mastering. That's, that's mind-blowing. A lot of people have done it once or twice. This is how he did his whole career for the most part. It's amazing. And once it was, and once it was done... He sent it to the master of mastering, Bernie Grudman himself. And he, Bernie Grudman, came on our show and just hit us with volumes of knowledge. Guy's a true master. So for me, I would have voted for Prince. Simply because it is a, first of all, it is his masterpiece creation. That's first. Second of all, he did it himself. There was no team. There was no group of songwriters. There were no session players. He did this alone. Amazing. And it still holds up. But I will knock it down a point for this one reason. The original release, for whatever reason, has no bottom end, and we all know this. It ain't there. Not on the CD, not on the vinyl, not in a download. Now, and I did, I played this fair too. I did not review my brand new vinyl super deluxe package. I did not do that. I did not review the super deluxe high resolution download. No, no, no. I, I reviewed the 1987 CD that I bought while in college. So don't give me that look like, oh man, no, I did not do that. And as great as this album is, and I think we can all agree, it's great. It is lacking that heft, that bottom end that reaches out and just smacks you. It ain't there. And that is my one nitpick about this album. Material-wise, song, songwriting-wise, please. It's all there for you, <clears throat> but it does have, it, it is lacking the bottom end. Conversely, my first concern, and we talked about this with Bernie Grudman on, on our podcast on Prince, Michael Dean and myself did. We both asked him like, Hey Bernie, you know, the first version kind of lacking there. <laughs> and he's all, well, Mark, we had different technologies back then. You're going to hear what you're going to hear now. It's going to be okay. I'm like, all right, cool. And when my box set got here, I put on the vinyl. Like, yeah, that's what's going on. But again, I can't let that sway me. What carried the day for me with this album, again, one person 
created this, played this, and for the most part, engineered this. That's amazing. That's amazing. And it was only, and it's not the first time he had done it either. That's the thing. This was his deal from 4U up through 1999 and through Purple Rain pretty much. You know, he let Winnie and Lisa do their thing on the, around the world a day in parade. And for whatever reasons, that didn't work out. He's like, you know what? I know what I do. I'm going to do what I do better than anybody else. Do it myself. And he did. I think it was Jimmy Jam who said once, Prince is the only musician who can come into the room, take your instrument, and play it better than you do. Damn. <laughs> That's got to be kind of, you know, discouraging. <laughs> it reminds me... <laughs> it reminds me of a few years ago when I got my uh, when I first bought my my Range Rover. I was so excited. I was so excited. Um, a lot of you may have heard this before, so please bear with me. But when I I was thinking about getting that car, and I'm talking to my mentor, um, the recently deceased. Judge Jimmy Long, rest in peace, Jimmy. I miss you. But we were talking about it one day, and he said, Mark, you should go ahead and get that car. I said, why? He said, because your clients want to see you in that car. It sends a message. I said, okay. And to me, and again, everyone who knows me knows I've said this many times. To me, Jimmy was Don Corleone of the legal world. I was Michael. If Jimmy said something was so, it was so. If Jimmy sent me to come see you, that's your ass. <laughs> that's just the way it is. <laughs> and so we start looking for one. <clears throat> Patty sends me a text, you know, a couple of weeks into the search. And there's one at a dealership, you know, generally close to the house. I'm like, well, let me go take a look. So I go on over there. It was like dark blue or black. I got in, I'm like, eh, no, I'm not feeling this. I can't, I can't put my finger on it, but it just didn't feel, I didn't, even, I didn't even start it up. It just did not feel right. As I pull out of the lot, I look across the street to a lot directly in front of me, and I see what eventually I ended up buying. I'm like, oh, oh, I got to take a look at this. So I pull into that lot and I walk, you know, on the lot into the office. I walk behind the, the car and I see a little metal badge on the back trunk lid, I guess. What, what do you call it? Hatchback trunk lid. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. In the back. Shit. <laughs> and it said supercharged. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is the one. And so I walked in and I'm not wearing lawyer clothes. I'm not wearing my working duds. I walk in, and they don't know me from Adam. I'm like, you know what? I want to, t I want to take a look at this. You know, take it for a spin. And they're like, well, we don't know. I'm like, oh, you don't know who I, you don't know who I am. <laughs> Prepare yourself. And so I pull it up, pull out my weapons of war. First, here's my California driver's license. So I'm ready to go drive. Second, here's my California bar card. Yeah, I'm one of those. Oh, yeah, and by the way, here is my National Football Players Association, Players Association agent card. Now, what do you have to say to that? Mr. Wiggins, take it. Take it for the weekend. <laughs> That's more like it. A little more bowing and scraping out of you, buddy. <laughs> and so I walked out to it. Got in. I said, aren't you coming with me to take it for a spin? He's like, no, 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 no. We trust you. Go, go. I'm like, all right, cool. So I pull it out on the street. I'm like, yeah, this is nice. This is okay. But I need to know what it's about, though, under the hood. And so I turn onto a little side street, and I stand on the accelerator to see what the supercharger could do. And it was like stepping on a bomb took off. I'm like, yeah, 
This is the one. <laughs> and so I went ahead and played it, or played it. I went ahead and bought it, got it done in 20 minutes, took it straight to Jimmy, my mentor, my man. So I pull into the park to, to, to the driveway. He comes on out. Oh, you got a new car? I'm like, yeah, Jimmy. I'm killing it, I, I know. <laughs> He's like, yeah, that's pretty nice. That's pretty nice. What's under the hood? I said, V8. Oh, by the way, 400 supercharged horses. <laughs> yeah, what it is. And Jimmy's like, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Jimmy had recently bought a Jaguar F-Type. And for you car heads, you know it's a serious machine. So he's all, that's pretty good, Mark. That's pretty good. I got 495 horsepower. <laughs> I'm like, well, shit. <laughs> so you take that type of, you know, ego smack and you apply it as a musician. When you're sitting there playing your instrument and you're just killing it. Here comes Prince, picks it up, plays it better than you do. You're like, well, shit. Now what? <laughs> And so, again, going, you know, taking the long way back to side of the times, I would have voted for it in 1987. I would vote for it now. Uh, I'm not as militant against you 2 winning. I can see why they won. I really can. And they taught us in law school that reasonable, reasonable minds can disagree. But I would have voted for Prince. Sorry. That's the way it is. <laughs> And that's my opinion, damn it, and I'm sticking to it. So, those of you those of you who hung out and got through this one with me, thank you. Thank you for listening. Uh, the next time I come back and someone asks me about this, now that we are starting to come out of this pandemic a little bit, someone asked me, someone said, well, Sexy, what about the Michelin stars? I'm like, okay, we can work that out. So, very recently... I had an opportunity to take my goddaughter Smurf. I love my Smurf. Raised her from a pup. Who's calling me? They can wait. <laughs> I had an opportunity to take Smurf to a Michelin starred restaurant. And I made sure to pay attention. I think I put pictures on my Instagram. And we'll talk about that next time and probably some more music. Thank you all for listening. Shout out to my podcast crew. Of course, the, the Oracle, Michael Dean. This does not happen without Michael Dean's support and encouragement. Michael, thank you. Uh, Aunt Pooh, my man. Q Storm, my arch nemesis. <laughs> Big Ken, now, brother, I have not forgotten about you. We miss you, dog. We do. Day dropping, same thing, man. And that will be it for me. 1987 Grammys, I would have voted for Prince. Because I said so. Your mileage may vary, but that's okay too. I'll catch you all later. <laughs>